Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Iruk the Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Machan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today on the Indo Daily, the Idaho murders, how the suspect was caught. This girl, her name is Dylan. She also lived in the house on the same floor as Zana, which is where the bodies of Zana and Ethan were found. She heard thuds from upstairs, but you know, this was a house with five girls living in it. It was a college house. Sounds were not hugely unusual. She thought it was her upstairs roommate Kaylee playing with her dog. Then she thought she heard a male voice at some point. Eventually when she opened her door, she saw a man dressed in black with a mask over his nose and mouth and bushy eyebrows, tall, athletically built. And she said she was frozen in fear and she shut the door. In the early hours of November 13th, four University of Idaho students were stabbed to death in their house in Moscow, Idaho. Police responded to a call for an unconscious person and police found four dead when they arrived. The victims appeared to have been close friends. On the same day they were killed, Kaylee Gonsalves posted this picture showing all four students smiling. One lucky girl to be surrounded by these people every day, she wrote and people there still know very little about how or why the victims were killed. They tell us that there's no immediate threat to people in and around this area, but then they also add there's no suspect. I'm Tabitha Monaghan, and today on the Indo Daily, I'm talking to Sheila Flynn, US reporter with the London Independent, about the old fashioned detective work and a seven week investigation that finally led to an arrest. Sheila, going back to November, tell me about when this story first broke and what the police found. Okay, so this all began on November 13th, which was a Sunday when the bodies of four University of Idaho students were found by police responding to a 911 call of an unconscious person in Moscow, Idaho. And at the time, they said, you know, there were four people found dead. They didn't initially name them. And they said they believed there was no threat to the community. That's a shocking crime to find four young people in a house killed. What was the reaction across the country? Well, everyone, you know, at first... This sounds terrible, but at first people's thoughts tend to turn to, you know, murder-suicide, a drug deal gone wrong, something like that. And initially, because it wasn't named and the cops didn't particularly seem freaked out, locally in Moscow, people started calling the lock lock shop, you know, because people didn't lock their doors. And it got attention initially 
And then it just really spiraled the way the information started coming out. And can you describe the town for me in Moscow, Idaho, for people who wouldn't be familiar? Absolutely. So Moscow is just a couple of miles from the border with Washington state. It is about a three and a half hour drive from the border with Canada. The town has 25,000 people and the university is by far the biggest employer. There are 12,000 students. Everybody either attends, knows someone, works for the school, uh, a big agriculture school at the university. There's a big, sweeping, beautiful arboretum, which actually came into play during the investigation. But around it, it's very rural. Within a few minutes, you're in the farms, a lot of wheat production, grain silos, very conservative part of America. Like I said, people don't lock their doors. But you have to take into consideration the vast majority of residents are armed. Can you tell me about the victims and what we know about them? So the victims were 21-year-old Kaylee Gonsalves and Madison Mogan. They were best friends who grew up together about an hour and a half north in Coeur d'Alene. And they came to the university together, lived together in this rental home. Kaylee was actually supposed to graduate early in December and had an internship lined up in Texas. The next victims were Zana Kernodal, who was 20, and her boyfriend, Ethan Shapin, who was also 20. Zana lived in the house with the girls, and Ethan was, it's, we surmise, was just spending the night. Uh, he was actually a triplet, and his brother and sister also attend the university, and most of the victims were involved in fraternities and sororities. Sheila, can you tell me exactly how the four victims died? All we know is that they were stabbed. Uh, we, uh, the affidavit, sorry, the court documents say it was a K-bar knife with a U.S. Marine Corps logo on it. But the, 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 the weapon hasn't been found and the details surrounding their injuries, we think from the coroner's report, some of them had defensive wounds, but the 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 kind of nitty-gritty gruesome details have not been released. So talk to me about the investigation because from my reading of it, for weeks there didn't really look like a lot was going on. The police didn't have a suspect straight away. But that really wasn't the case. No, you know, the way the information was parceled out here, I think contributed to the absolute media circus and online investigative frenzy about this because... It was little bits of information trickling out, and a lot of it was contradictory. But the biggest factor was they had initially said there was no threat to the community. And within days, they backtracked and said now they could no longer rule out a threat to the community. And that's when everyone locally, like the lock shop, couldn't keep up with the demand. People were very scared. What we know now is they knew a heck of a lot more than they were saying they actually had a physical description of a suspect from a witness, one of the other roommates who lived in the house who saw a man on the night in the home. Uh, so they really dug in and started doing old school police work. And based on the description, this girl, her name is Dylan. She also lived in the house on the same floor as Zana, which is where the bodies of Zana and Ethan were found. And she heard things she heard thuds from upstairs, but you know, this was a house with five girls living in it. You know, people would, it was a college house, typical. I'm, I'm assuming sounds were not hugely unusual. She thought it was her upstairs roommate, Kaylee, playing with her dog. Then she thought she heard a male voice at some point. Eventually when she opened her door, she saw a man dressed in black with a mask over his nose and mouth and bushy eyebrows, tall, athletically built. 
and she said she was frozen in fear and she shut the door. But the cops had that. Then they just did, you know, real detective work. They started going over video surveillance and identified a suspicious white Hyundai sedan that had been in the area around the times of the crimes. And this, you would not be there unless it's five and four in the morning, unless you lived there or had a reason. And this was spotted repeatedly. So they put out a call for law enforcement in the area to look for that type of vehicle. And a police officer across the state border in Washington State at the Washington State University campus ran the plates of a white sedan there he saw and traced it to a criminology PhD student named Brian Christopher Koberger. And when they pulled up the driver's license photo, he matched the physical description. So then they got a warrant for his cell phone records. They realized that while his phone was turned off during the times that the crimes were suspected to be committed, the cell phone had pinged off the house at least 12 times, not the house, but the towers nearby, at least 12 times in the months beforehand. Seemed like he'd been casing the place. It returned on the morning of the murders, like a few hours after around 9 a.m., I believe. So he may have come back to visit the scene. Based on all that, he clearly was the prime suspect. And they actually had just one single sample of DNA that was found on, there was a there was a knife sheath found in uh, the room that Kaylee and Maddie were found in. They got a, this sample of the button snap of the sheath. I don't know, was it a print or a hair or whatever, mm-hmm. but that didn't trace to anyone directly in the database. They actually found it, it seems, through forensic genealogy because Cops went through the trash of his family's home in Pennsylvania across the country. Based on that, they matched the DNA to his father. There was a 99% likelihood that it was his dad. And that's how they ended up getting the arrest warrant for him in Pennsylvania at his parents' house. And they arrested him on December 30th. And what do we know about the suspect, Brian Koberger? So Koberger grew up in pretty rural Pennsylvania, he, his mother worked in the school district where he and his two older sisters graduated from. It seems he was overweight and not particularly, I mean, pretty average in high school until his final year when he lost 100 pounds. And ev- people who've been talking, people who had been friends with him at the time, fellow students, said that marked a change in his personality. He became a, he became a little aggressive with people, a bit of a bully himself. And Uh, Teachers and fellow students also noted that even back then in high school, he had a very serious interest in criminal justice and was taking courses even then before he graduated. Uh, Some friends have said he got into drugs and then then they said he might have gone to rehab. That's a little murky, too. But anyway, by 2018, he was studying at third level and he got a bachelor's and a master's degree and then went and the master's was in criminal justice. And then he traveled to the West Coast to study at Washington State University and be a teaching assistant as well in their department of criminology. He clearly had an interest in crime. It is a bizarre detail of this story that he studied criminal justice. And I had also read that he wanted to take up an internship with the law enforcement over there. 
he had when the Idaho authorities released the court documents once he was extradited back to Idaho from Pennsylvania. One of the details included was that during the autumn of 2022, he had applied for an internship at the Pullman Police Department. And Pullman is right across the border where Washington State University is. Now, I've called them repeatedly, and there is a gag order in place for law enforcement involved in this investigation, but they won't even tell me whether or not he ever even got that internship. Sheila, what do we know about Brian's background? What what were his family like? So his mother was a paraprofessional at the local school district, which is basically a teacher's aide. And his dad was a maintenance worker. His sisters, who are both older, both actually work in mental health. One is a therapist and the other is a counselor. One still lives in Pennsylvania and the other lives in New Jersey. Now, They have deleted their social media accounts and the family turned up in court to support him in Pennsylvania. They had the family of Koberger have released a statement expressing their heartfelt condolences, of course, to the victims' families, but also urging everybody to remember innocence before proven guilty. The big question here about him, though, is did he know the victims? What is the link there? That has absolutely not come out. It seems that so far no concrete evidence has been shared, but there is quite a bit that is being held back, as you can imagine. So, but nothing has come out. The families don't seem to think that there's anything linking them, but who would know? I mean, maybe he had some passing perceived slight by one of them. It's very, there's a lot of questions still. What about uh, the family reaction to his arrest? Obviously, they're satisfied that someone is in custody, And one of the families in particular had been asking questions of law enforcement over the weeks, kind of seemingly frustrated at a lack of more answers. But uh, they've said, you know, they they're happy that someone is in custody and they're just waiting to see what else happens. And you mentioned the mobile phone data that they were able to get from Brian Koberger. This it wasn't that he was there the day before, the day of and the day after, like you mentioned, of the murder. It was months leading up to that. It was. So numerous times he'd actually been stopped by a cop on one of those occasions, totally unrelated. Um, I don't know if he was a terrible driver or what, because his car also got stopped twice on the drive back. He actually drove back over the holidays with his father in the sedan police were looking for um, from Washington to Pennsylvania, which is a multi-day drive. That's straight across the country. So we know he had been casing the place for a while, but I mean, there could be even more times he'd been there that we don't know about, allegedly. And I want to ask you about the witness. What took so long from when the attack happened to when the 911 call was made? The explanation that has been given and Kaylee Gonzalez's dad has said, you know, they have no reason to think that to to be angry, that she was just scared to death, basically frozen in fear is what she said to the authorities. But why it took so long. I mean, she closed her door, but we don't know there. We we don't know the details of what happened between in the eight hours before the 911 call came in at 11.59 a.m. on November 13th. The police have said it was made by one of the roommates because there were two survivors in the house. Dylan is the only one who said she saw that. We don't know which one of them made it or what the circumstances were. And can I ask you exactly where is the house? I mean, would it have been on a street that Brian Koberger would have been passing anyway? No, it's kind of 
it's a little bit up on a on a hill that looks across a, uh, a sports field, a deserted sports field, to where all the fraternities and sororities are. The Arboretum is actually to the left, so they were searching that for a time. I think they thought maybe the murder weapon might have been there because they could have walked through it, you know, on the way home, sort of. But um, it's not in a place that has it's that's heavily trafficked. It's a little lane that goes kind of up, and then you make a little right. You can't zoom in and out of there quickly there's no reason to be in that section. And it's mostly student housing, off-campus houses and little apartments. It's not a place that you would be frequenting unless you had a reason to be there. There's been huge interest in this case, both in the US, but also across the water here as well. Why? I mean, is it just because of the amount of time that it took or is it the drip feeding of the details? What do you think? I think it's a combination. I also think the fact this went on for so long just kept people guessing and the brutality of it and the fact it was four people. I mean, and nothing was really heard is very, very strange. So the brutality of it, the number of the victims and the ongoing mystery and the fact that no one knew whether or not clearly a killer was on the loose, but nobody knew whether or not he or she might be looking for more victims. Uh, The cops were flip-flopping about whether or not to be concerned. Uh, I think that had a lot to do with it. And when was he finally arrested? He was arrested on December 30th, so uh, the day before New Year's Eve. And then he had another court hearing in Pennsylvania the following Tuesday, and then he was flown back to Idaho. And once he got there, the documents detailing what led to the arrest warrant were unsealed on Thursday. And when do we expect the trial to begin? There obviously has been no date set that I'm aware of. And if he is found guilty, what kind of penalty could he be facing? Well, Idaho does have the death penalty, but it will be up to the prosecutors to fully decide once the trial starts what they're actually going to do. And my thanks to Sheila Flynn for joining me today. I'm Tabitha Monaghan and today's episode of the Indo-Daily was produced by Mary Carroll with sound by Gavin Hennessy. Archive clips from ABC, CNN, Fox News and NBC. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review. Mm-hmm.